suppose I had sat down with, uh, with Dylan Ruth and established a relationship with him, planted a seed with him. Guess what? Nine black people having Bible study will still be having Bible study this coming Sunday. That's the voice of Daryl Davis, our guest on today's Movie Maker interviews. He's a black musician who befriends white supremacists to try to get them to give up their old ways. He's led more than 200 to renounce racism, and, as you're about to hear, more than 50 Klansmen have surrendered their robes to him. He's gotten some criticism for engaging with racists, but in the clip you just heard, he explains that one of his goals is to prevent lone wolf attacks, like the one carried out by Dylan Roof in a South Carolina church in 2015. Davis is the focus of Accidental Courtesy, Daryl Davis, Race in America, a documentary by Matthew Ornstein, now playing on Amazon Prime. Writer Greg Gilman did a terrific feature about Davis and the film for MovieMaker.com this week, so I asked him if we could turn their interview into a podcast. Greg and Daryl agreed. Daryl Davis started trying to change white supremacists years ago. He was playing piano in a Maryland truck stop when a man who turned out to be a Klansman said Davis was the first black man he'd ever heard who could play like Jerry Lee Lewis. Davis corrected him, asking, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned to play? He's been educating racists ever since. I'm Tim Malloy, and welcome to Movie Maker Interviews. Here's Greg Gilman's interview with Daryl Davis, and you can read Greg's profile of Daryl Davis at MovieMaker.com. How did your white supremacist friends react to the film? Actually, they uh, they enjoyed it, and and they saw so, some uh, validity to it. Now, some of them have not seen it, but the ones uh, who have, yeah, enjoyed it. Did it help? Uh, reform any more racists? Uh, did you get any more robes out of it? My white supremacist friends, uh, the ones who were in the movie, uh, who uh, who saw it, yeah, they thought it, you know they were treated very fairly. Uh, they were happy with it. Others uh, who saw the movie who were not uh, in the movie uh, have enjoyed it. And then there are others who I've talked to who have not seen it yet. I believe you said your robe count in the film, which is I think now five years ago that that scene was filmed. Uh, you said it was at twenty five or twenty six. Has your robe count increased since then? Uh, yes, it has. In fact, it has doubled. Um, I would say it's probably between 54 and 57 right now. You know, you talk about in the film, you're, you're, you're kind of working toward building a museum to preserve this horrible American history that, you know, of course, is we need to recognize and understand. Are you any closer to establishing your museum? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes. Uh, well, I've always had my 501c3, which I got, you know, some years ago. Um, I'm still looking for a building to purchase. You know where where I can call the you know uh, it the home for the museum, but uh, developments as of late, I'm going to loan a uh, some of my stuff, a good deal of my stuff, my neo-Nazi stuff and my Klan uh, stuff, to the Orlando, Florida Holocaust Center, which is building a museum, and they will put it on display there for a while, and then it will travel the country to various museums, and then come back to me. So that is uh, one step uh, closer to getting my own museum. So it will, like I said, it will travel, be displayed all around the country and, uh, and then come back and there will be more interest in, uh, in my getting my own museum and more support and help. I mean, what do you think is, is, the, is the real benefits of people, um, black and white and you know, brown, uh, coming to an exhibit like this? Well, to learn our history and learn what not only uh, see what took place, but uh, it will also be interactive where uh, people can come and, and describe their own or talk about their own experiences. My particular museum will also deal in that and deal with people who have racist spouses or racist parents or things like that. They can come to the museum. I'll be holding seminars. I'll, I'll be having lectures from uh, myself, other people in the field, former white supremacists, and things like that. To, it'll be interactive, where not only can they come and see the history, but they can leave there feeling empowered that they too can contribute to, to uh, taking history in the right direction. You know, we can't change what's happened in the past, but we can start from where we are and help shape our future. And that's what I want my museum to be. Not just coming in and, you know, and looking at a bunch of robes or you know, or learning, you know, a little piece of uh, literature and things like that, but to, but to engage and interact and have people discuss their, you know, their, their points of view. Talking about race is, uh, has been taboo for way too long. 
And I'll tell you what, a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. So my museum will be as much about dialogue as it is about display. Uh, used a great word that, that I think also I felt from watching the film, Accidental Courtesy, empowerment <clears throat> in terms of how to have these conversations with people. And you know what the most recent iteration of Black Lives Matter movement, it's really emphasizing our responsibility to go out to talk about it, you know, to break that taboo and have discussions. What I love about the film is it, it shows you that there is a way to approach this where you're not just screaming at each other. And um, I was curious if you had, you know, some advice for people um, on how to approach these conversations. I've been doing this now for almost 36 years, 35 years. And I've learned a lot uh, and how to approach people who, uh, who may have different points of view. Now, some of it comes from, some of my, my skill set comes from my background, where I'm 62 years old now, and starting as a child with parents in the U.S. Foreign Service, I lived overseas quite a bit, starting in 1961. Every two years, we went to a different country to live because of my dad's assignment with the U.S. Embassy. In between the two-year assignments, we'd come back home here to the States, you know, for... Uh, several months, maybe a year, and then get reassigned to another country for two years. Today, I'm a professional musician, and I travel all over the world, performing and around this country. So when you combine my travels as a child with my travels now as an adult, I have been to 57 different countries on six continents. So starting at, a, at an early age, I've been exposed to a multitude of uh, ethnicities, cultures, religions, you name it. And as a kid, you know how we all sponge everything we can see. And so that's helped shape who I've become and my perspectives as an adult today. So that background has also enabled me to sit down with people of different belief systems, whether they're halfway around the world or whether they're right here in my own country, such as the Ku Klux Klan or neo-Nazis, et cetera. It's that foundation that I have that enables me to do that. Another thing, <clears throat> two other things that uh, are mandatory. And it doesn't have to be just about race. It could be about anything. Uh, it could be some other hot topic. Let's say abortion. Let's say nuclear weapons, global warming, the current presidency, the war in the Middle East, the environment, whatever. You're on one side, somebody else is on the other side. Learn as much as you can. Educate yourself as much as you can about your adversary's position and what they believe, their ideology, their, their, their position, whatever. Learn as much as you can about that. Because even though they may not like you, when they see that you have done your homework and you know a lot about what they stand for, they will respect you. And that way you can have a clear-cut conversation and they're more apt to listen to you and take in what you're saying. Okay, so that's number one, educate yourself. Number two, know who you are. Be open to ideas that you may not have heard before or that you may not um, necessarily like, but be willing to listen to them. Listening is a key factor. One thing I've learned about um, people, no matter how far I've gone from this country, and I've been to the other side of the world many times, no matter how far I've gone and how many different people I've seen, one thing I've learned is this. Everybody wants to be heard, they want to be respected, they want to be loved, and they want the same thing for their families as I want for my family. Just basic, those basic four things. So, you know, when you take the, the Klan, for example, um, I had a question that I formed when I was age 10 after a racist incident, you know, which you saw in the movie, where I, I had rocks and stuff thrown at me in the Cub Scouts. The question I asked uh, was, or I formed was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And that question still plagues me today, but I've gotten you know, answers and stuff. So with the Klan, um, I asked somebody this question and I'm told, well, Mr. Davis, you know, uh, you know black people are prone to crime. You know, there, there are more black criminals uh, than white criminals in this country, you know? And I say, well, what, what makes you say that? 
Well, Mr. Davis, all you have to do is, is look at our prison system. There are more blacks in prison than there are white people. Okay, so I don't push back. You know, uh, I'm, I'm listening, all right? Because the guy's wall is up. As soon as he sees me, the wall goes up. After all, he's a Klansman, I'm black. So the wall is up. And uh, so I, I just sit back and I listen. Now, I realize that what the man is saying is a half-truth. There are indeed more uh, black people in prison than white people. But uh, he's not considering the inequity of the judicial system or the fact that there are white people and black people in prison who are poor. And some of them are innocent, but they could not afford you know, adequate legal representation. So they take some plea deal, the uh, public defender offers them, uh, and, they, and they plead guilty to some, something they didn't even do, just so you know, they'll get two years instead of 10 years or something, and there they are. Right? So he's not considering that because what he sees fits his narrative. You know, black people are criminals. And one's perspective is one's reality. So if that's what he sees, that's what he thinks, all right? Then I'm also told that black people are inherently lazy. We don't wanna work. We prefer to scam the government welfare system. Uh, and then I'm told that, uh, that uh, black people have a smaller brain than white people. So the smaller the brain, the less room for uh, intelligence. The larger the brain, the more capacity for IQ. And so are these things that this person is saying to me, and he's only sitting two and a half feet uh, away from me, right across a little table in a motel room, um, are these things offensive? Sure, they're offensive. But am I offended by it? Absolutely not. And wh why would I not be offended by it? Well, that's the whole reason, because it's not true. Mm -hmm. It's not true. Why would I be offended by a lie? Especially a lie coming from somebody who just met me five or 10 minutes ago, and all he sees is this, the color of my skin. Now, if my mother or if my father told me that, that I was born with a smaller brain and, and I'm lazy and prone to crime and all that kind of stuff, maybe I, I, I'd give it some consideration. After all, they brought me into this world, they raised me, you know, it's, it's, you know they know me a little better, right? But somebody who just walks into, in, into a motel room, sees my skin color and makes his assertions about me, no, I'm not gonna be offended by that because I know who I am, all right? Now, most people would react because they would be offended and they would push back. No, you're the criminal. You're the one who's burning crosses in people's yards and hanging people from trees and, and blowing up synagogues and blowing up churches and dragging people behind pickup trucks and murdering people on and on and on. And you all are lazy and so forth and so on. You know, there's gonna be pushback, all right? So what's gonna be accomplished? You know, as soon as you get together, boom, boom, boom. You know, you're pushing back against these accusations. Now that's what they expect because what they are saying is definitely offensive. Mm -hmm. And so they're used to that pushback. So their wall is already up. And so you're just hitting the wall and you're not accomplishing anything. So by my sitting back and listening to them, giving them that platform, I throw them off their game because they're not used to that. They're not used to be able to get all that stuff out, especially when talking to a black person. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I'm kissing their butt is that I'm giving them their platform because I know who I am. And see, this is very important. You must have self-esteem. You must know who you are. If you don't know who you are, you have no business going in there and talking to people like that. Because mm -hmm. if you don't know who you are, they will tell you who you are. <laughs> you, might, you might end up believing they're believing them, okay? So you must know who you are. And um, so when they get done, they're off their game. Because I've given them that platform to, to express themselves, that wall has come down. And now they're willing to reciprocate and listen to me. So now that's my opportunity to plant a seed over on their side of the wall. You know, I cannot plant the seed if, if the wall is up, because you just gonna hit the wall and bounce off the wall, right? I gotta go over across the wall. So now, how do I plant that seed? I do not attack them for what they say, right? Because as soon as you start attacking them, no, you're wrong about this, blah, 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 that wall starts going back up. So rather than go on the offense, I go on the defense. So in order to keep that wall down, I say, well, look, you know what? Um, I don't have a criminal record. I never have. Nobody in my family has a criminal record. I, uh, I've never been on welfare. 
Nobody in my family's ever been on welfare. I've never measured my brain size, but I'm sure it's the same size as anybody else's. In fact, because um, you know what, what, what they what they point out to me when I said, um, "Well, how do you figure? You know, we have smaller brains in, in white people." Well, Mr. Davis, all you have to do is, is look at the uh, high school SAT scores. Blacks consistently score lower than uh, than white people. You know, uh, again, it's a half truth. That is true. Blacks are, are on the bottom of the uh, of the SATs, but they're not given the equal opportunities for education that, and 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 high quality teachers and textbooks and so forth. So he's not seeing that. So his perspective is his reality. So I say, look, you know, um, I, I, have the, I have the same brain size as anybody else. I've never measured it, but I tell you what, uh, I have a college degree, you know, and I knew he didn't have a college degree and I probably have more education in my little finger than his whole clan put together. So, but I'm not gonna attack him. I'm just gonna defend myself. Because when you, when you attack somebody, that wall goes up. So I prove myself. And I, I talk about my family. My family's educated. My mom and dad both had master degrees. My dad was working on his PhD, et cetera. So now that gives them something to think about. That seed is planted. And the next time I see them, I water that seed you know, with more nutrients. And what happens is this, and I know this for a fact, because after eventually when they leave, we talk about what happened, what was, you know, what was the turning point in process. And I've, I, I've been told countless times, you know, they go home at the end of the day and they reflect upon what went on throughout the day. Just like, you know, at the end, at, at the end of your day, you will reflect, you know, what transpired today. And maybe you, you go over our conversation in your mind or whatever else. They do the same thing. And they're thinking, you know, um, I just sat down and had a, had a conversation with a black guy for three hours and, and, we, and we didn't fight. You know, we disagreed on some things, we agreed on other things, but we didn't fight. And, and what he said about such and such made sense but he's black. But what he said was true, but he's black. So they're having a cognitive dissonance thing going on, right? They know when they review what I said, it was true and it made sense, but they don't want to believe it because it came from a black person. So that's their dilemma. Do I continue believing a lie just because he's black? So they have to come to that conclusion. You know, I don't, I don't like to say that I convert people. You know, in the media, you see all kinds of stuff, you know, black musician converts 200 Klansmen, black musician converts, you know, convinces 50 Klansmen to give up their robes or whatever. No, I did not convert anybody. I didn't even convert one. I am the impetus for over 200 uh, white supremacists, <coughs> white supremacists to leave that ideology, whether it's neo-Nazi or Klan or whatever else. Um, I'm the impetus for it, but they converted themselves. And it seems like the key to this, you know, the entire, this entire lifelong struggle that's been going on in the United States um, is changing the mind changes culture. You know, laws can only do so much, but it has right. to come from a change of mind. Right. You can, um, you know, you can compel somebody's behavior with, with, with a law, but you cannot compel their attitude. And that comes with education and exposure and dialogue, getting to know one another. And I've always said that, uh, that fear uh, breeds, I'm sorry, ignorance. Ignorance breeds fear. And um, fear, if not kept in check and addressed, will breed hatred and anger. Because we get angry at the things that frighten us. We get angry at the things that we hate. Uh, and if that's not kept in check, uh, that will breed destruction. So, you know, in, in most, like, like, for example, three years ago, on August the 12th, 2017, we saw exactly what I just described to you in Charlottesville, Virginia, where there's that large uh, white supremacist rally, right? There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of hatred and a lot of anger in Charlottesville. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and attempted to murder as many counter-protesters as he could by driving full speed into the crowd. He succeeded in injuring 20 people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. That's, that's the whole chain. Ignorance breeds fear, breeds hatred and anger, breeds destruction. Now, if you want to address a problem, normally you do it from the top down, okay? <clears throat> so you say, 
like a police department or a corporation, a company. When people are tight at the top, people down on the street are tight, mm. right? When people are acting stupid and, and, and irresponsible at, at the top, they're setting a bad example, they can expect people down on the floor or down on the street of their company or their department, uh, police department or whatever, to, to be um, uh, irresponsible as well. People take their cues from the top. So mm. it's trickled down, right? So if you're talking about racism in a police department, yes, it must be top down. But when you want to address it uh, systemically or individually, it's, you, that, that top down does not work. It has to be bottom up. And let me explain to you. Forget about the destruction. What's destroyed is not coming back. George Floyd is not coming back, unfortunately. That was destroyed. That's the top level, right? Next level down is the, is the uh, hatred and the anger. Forget about those. Those are just symptoms. Mm-hmm. Just pass them by. Next level down is the fear. Another symptom. Forget about it. Go to the bottom, the root. The root cause is the ignorance. And if you cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate or be angry about. If there's something to be angry and, and hate about, then there's nothing to destroy. So the good thing is we can cure the ignorance, but we keep st- starting at the top, trying to fix the destruction and fix the hate and so forth and so on. We're wasting time up there. Come down to the bottom. It's like cancer. If cancer is in your bone, you know, you don't put a topical cream on top of your arm, you know, or put a band-aid on it. You gotta drill down to the bone and hit it with that radiation or that chemo or whatever. So the good thing is this, there is a cure for ignorance. And that cure is called education, education and exposure. And when you, when you give people that, then they can think for themselves and, and their minds are expanded and then they turn their lives around. I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me. Um, I give, well, not during lockdown, of course, but normally I give anywhere between 60 and 80 lectures a year right here in this country, colleges, universities, corporations, police departments, churches, synagogues, et cetera. Um, I can tell you this, two out of every three, I'm sorry, two to three out of every 10 lectures I give, especially like at a college or university, this will happen. I'll do the lecture, I'll do the Q&A, and then at the end, there'll still be some kids who come up to the podium to either ask me one one last question or want to touch one of the clan robes that I bring or whatever, right? There'll be two or three times out of 10, there'll be one student standing over there in the distance. And I've, I've come to learn what he or she wants. They're, she or she is waiting for the crowd to go away from me. When the crowd goes away, after they finish asking the questions or looking at the robes or whatever, they'll come over here and they'll like look around and I know what they're gonna say, but I just you know play dumb. And they finally say, hey, Mr. Davis, you know, I, I really enjoyed your lecture. And then they look around and they say, you know, my mother is in the Klan or my father's a neo-Nazi or something like that. And, and that's how I was raised. And, you know, and now I'm here at University of Georgia or I'm here at, you know, such and such community college or whatever. And, and my boyfriend is from Pakistan. He's a Muslim or, or my girlfriend is black or my boyfriend's Jewish or whatever. And I can't, I can't take my, my boyfriend or girlfriend home because my parents will kill me or they'll disown me. And I don't want to tell my friend because they'll drop me. So they got this secret that is burning on their chest, creating an ulcer because that's how they were raised. Mm-hmm. And now they're here at whatever university. There are people from all over the country there. There are people from all over the world attending this university. So they're being exposed to stuff that they did not see in the neighborhood. Um, and, and a lot of the things that the people that they love the most, and the people that they trust the most, their parents have told them were wrong. And now they're dating one of these people. Now their parents wanted them to go away and get an education but they didn't want that education. <laughs> so now, so how, how, how do they bridge that? You know, they got you know, to they, they tell their parents at some point or something. Mm. Um, so that's why they want to come and talk to me about it. Because they figure, you know, I, I got to tell somebody. I can't tell my parents. I can't tell my boyfriend or girlfriend because they'll, they'll dump me. You know, so I see that all the time. And this is why it's so important to have these dialogues. What advice do you give those uh, kids who come up to you and, confront that or I, t- I tell them to be transparent I say listen you know your parents house is their house and you've got to honor 
them in their house. You know, you know I said, you, know, you need to be honest with them. Let them know, hey, listen, um, you know, they wanted you to get an education as, as did you. And, and you've learned some things that you did not learn here. And some of the things that you learn go against what you were taught at home. And, but, you, but you have found these things to be true. And I want to share them with you. And if they don't want you to bring so, you know, so-and-so home with you, uh, or they want to disown you, that's fine. You know, do not disrespect them in their house. That's their house. And so, so don't bring that person you know, back there. But let them know that you know, you're not going to, to, uh, to change your ways because you have learned something. And, and you hope that one day they will accept it and that you have the, you know, the fortitude to come and be honest with them and tell them. And you would like for them to at least listen to you and consider the things that you're saying. And hopefully one day that you will, you will allow me to bring my boyfriend or my girlfriend home. Or maybe, you know, when you come visit me at school, we all can get together and have dinner. You know, I know you love me and, and I, I know you want the best for me. And I'm not making any any um, irrational decisions. I'd like for you to consider that because you've not been there. So you know, always be honest with them. And eventually, they do come around. Um, some of them may take longer than others. Mm-hmm. And, so, and some some may even go through a disowning period. You know, I, I haven't talked to my daughter in you know t- you know three or three or four years because she was dating some nigger or some spit or something like that. You know, some off the wall you know epithet. What, what's your thoughts on how this is all playing out on social media? I don't know if you like go on Twitter or anything, but like, do you think that the way people are having discourse online, which typically tends to be shouting matches and, and full of toxicity? No, it's, it's, it's wrong because they, you know, they don't know how to communicate. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they lack those communicatory skills. Uh, you know, they just take anybody's picture, make a meme out of it and, and make uh, and state their position. Uh, and if you don't agree with it, then, then you are the enemy and I'm going to unfriend you. You know, people have not learned those communicatory skills. And it's something, you know, that needs to be taught in uh, starting in elementary school. Uh, and, 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 and bring up examples and show things, have, you know, have conversations, have debates, you know, starting in, uh, in, in, those, in those, uh, those grades. So people can learn how to talk and resolve. Because again, I, I can't stress enough that a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. We don't have to agree agree with one another on everything, but we have to learn how to speak with one another and and respect the person's right to say what they want to say. We don't have to respect the content of what they're saying. Like if someone tells me, you know, that, that black people are inferior, I'm sitting there having a conversation with the guy, you know, I don't respect what the person is saying but I'm respecting his right to say it. Speak to someone as you yourself would like to be spoken to. Precisely, the old golden rule, treat others, treat others as you want to be treated. You know? and, and we have to understand something also, that <clears throat> understand the, the, the character makeup of, of who you're dealing with. And it's like, to, 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 to try to simplify it, uh, let me say this, because I'm not a psychologist, sociologist, so I'm, I'm going to be just dumb it down to where I understand it. Okay, um, people are basically two types. You have people who are 90%, let's just say 90% emotional, 10% logical, and other people who are 90% logical and 10% emotional. We all have both those abilities, but they weigh heavier in some people than others. You know, people who are who make there's uh, the majority of their decisions based upon emotion. Um, they have some logical uh, attributes to them and every once in a while their logic will kick in. People who make their decisions mainly based on, on logic have some emotional attributes to them. Uh, every once in a while they make an emotional decision, all right? But for, but for the bulk of it, they rely on how they're wired. Either they're wired emotionally or they're wired um, logically. So. When you're dealing with an adversary, uh, assess that person. Is this person more um, logical, or is she more, or is she more emotionally based? Mm. And and once you figure that out, then you know how to appeal to them, appeal to their emotions, or appeal to their logic. Yes. Now, because if somebody is basically totally emotional, no amount of logic is is going to is going to sway them. You got to appeal to their emotions. Now, this explains. This explains 
uh, something that I said in the movie. Um, I said that uh, every, not everybody who voted for Donald Trump is a racist, but every racist voted for Donald Trump. I have a lot of friends who voted for Donald Trump, and they're, and they're good friends of mine, and they're intelligent people and so forth and so on, not racist at all, right? Whatever reason they vote for Donald Trump, or, you know, you know, we're tired of politics, we, we need a businessman in there, and you know, whatever else you know, that appeals to them, all right? But the, the, you know, they, they would never associate with the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they abhor those people or white supremacists, you know? but yet they voted for Donald Trump, and these people voted for Donald Trump. Where do you get people at that opposite ends of the spectrum voting for the same guy? Because most of those people, are, they're, they're wired for emotion. And that's what Donald Trump appeals to. Mm. Fear. Fear is an emotion. Um, you know, you, you know the Mexicans, you know, they're, they're bringing rapists and murderers and drugs across our border. And we're going to build that wall and keep them out. We, you know, we're going you know, to make our country great again. And da, 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 da. How it's protesters. He, he's, protesters are taking over Seattle, the radical left Antifa. He's, you know. Yeah, they're, they're appealing. He, he is appealing to their fears. Fear is an emotion. And then Donald Trump, you know, he comes across more powerful and bigger than life. Power is an emotion. People want power, you know? Uh, I, I, I can walk down, you know, Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and get away with it. You know, that's an emotion, that's power, that's an emotion. He knows what, what he's doing. He's appealing to their emotions, all right? Where a logical person would say, you know, no, I'm not gonna put that person in office. You know, this is ridiculous. You know, not, not every Mexican is, is, is coming over here to murder somebody or rape somebody or bring drugs over here. You know, they see things logically. Um, so that's, that, to me, explains how you have to interact with individuals. Figure out, are they, do you appeal to them emotionally or do you appeal to them logically? And, and gear your arguments towards, towards those, uh, those uh, feelings. Speaking of Trump, you know, earlier in the conversation, you were talking about the kind of trickle down effect Mm -hmm. of, you know, someone at top. Do you feel that we've been witnessing, you know, for the last four years, kind of this uh, unspoken permission to, you know, uh, for lack of better words, to be to be horrible, to to treat people uh, not be as respectful to your fellow man? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also said in the film that I thought that, uh, that, that Donald Trump was the best thing that happened to this country. And, uh, and I still believe that. I do, not, I do not support him as president. I will not vote for him. But uh, he's definitely the best thing that has happened. And, what I, and how I explained it was he was breaking the backbone of this country. He was destroying this country. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't want to see our country be destroyed. But I said that what, almost five years ago. All right. Um, he, he's attacking everybody, Mexicans, women, um, black people, you gay people, uh, people with, uh, with special needs. When he, when he mocked that, uh, that reporter who had um, uh, muscular dystrophy or something, um, he's attacking everybody and he's destroying this country. Look, look at these protests going on. Look, you know, look, look, at, look at the division in our country. He is breaking the backbone of this country, exactly as I predicted it almost five years ago. Because this country was built on a two-tier society, white supremacy and slavery. These people on top are not going to come and help these people up. And when these people try to go up, these people are going to step, push them back down. Mm-hmm. All right? That's where we are. But when the whole backbone gets broken of the country, everybody's going to be down on the ground floor. And we're going to have to rebuild together. Now, that's no intelligent design of his. Right? Uh, it's happening because of his ego and his narcissism. Mm-hmm. But, but, but he is breaking the backbone of this country. As a result of Donald Trump, we have the Me Too movement uh, for women, which is a good thing because women have been abused yeah. uh, a long time in this and country. Men. A number of men also came forward. Exactly. And, and we're having more, t- more talk about racism because he keeps promoting it. Uh, in, in, in his uh, talks, you know, find Nazis on, you know, the Nazis are fine people on both sides, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we're having these discussions and things are changing. Um, these protests that, you know, that are going on as a result of the, uh, of the murder of George Floyd, and it's not just about George Floyd, 
It's about decades of Every, George Floyd's. Yeah, everything. It's, it's like yeah. a breaking point. The straw that broke the camel's back, essentially. Precisely. Enough, enough is kind of the, 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 the phrase that really sums it up. Right. And I, I believe that, you know, th- things could be handled a little bit better. But um, this is the greatest thing that has happened in, uh, in the 20th century and the 21st century. Now, I'm not taking anything away from all the great accomplishments of Martin Luther King and others. Uh, from the 20th century. Uh, we needed those accomplish- accomplishments as stepping stones to get to where we are today. All right? They paved the way, absolutely. And they, did, and they made a lot of progress, a lot of accomplishments. Um, what's going on today is the best thing that has happened thus far. A page is turning, and it's turning a lot faster than it had in the past. Uh, we're seeing police officers be fired and charged uh, a lot quicker than we ever have. In the past, if they were fired, if they were charged, it took months, mm-hmm. months. And now it's like happening in days. Yeah. Right? And not only that. Overhaul the, of these departments, too. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and while the protests were geared uh, specifically towards police, there has been a ripple effect where statues are coming down, a Confederate flag being banned from NASCAR, uh, food food brands changing their labels. Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, right? The Mississippi flag taking that Confederate thing out of there. Wow. That is an accomplishment. All right? That is a ripple effect. That's why I say the page is turning. And here is the thing. We've always had white people involved in our civil rights. Uh, ever since 1955 with Rosa Parks and the bus boycott. On through the 60s, with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, but we have never seen this many white people mm-hmm. involved in our in our um, in our cause. Because in the past, uh, when it was predominantly black people, you know, asking for justice and seeking equality, the powers that be were like this: they did not want to hear us. They shut us down. We go to court, our cases are dismissed. You know, and so now these people, the powers that be. They are seeing these protests and they're seeing more people who look like them than they've ever seen before. And so now they're pulling the earplugs out or else putting the hearing aids in and listening, (laughs) you know, and listening to what's going on and they're beginning to act. So it may get worse before it gets better, but at least that page is turning a lot faster. We're not at the end of the book. We're not even at the end of the chapter, but at least the page is turning. And that's what's important. So I've, I've heard this described at the, the Black Lives Matter movement, both described as the biggest civil rights movement of all time, and also uh, the New York Times recently published an article with a bunch of data describing it as the biggest movement period in American history. Uh, do you agree with either of those statements? I disagree, and I'll tell you why. Um, Black Lives Matter is not an organization. It, it's, it's a movement. Um, it's, it's a fragmented movement. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the idea behind it was a great idea of the founders. As I understand it, they, they wanted to put the national spotlight on the plight of black men who, for lack of a better term, were being murdered by white police officers and going to their grave, where a, a white person in the same situation either uh, got to, go, got to, go, to go, go home or got to go to jail um, or some got to go to jail via Burger King, all right, um, like Dylan Roof. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and so they lived where black men died in the same situation. So the national spotlight needed to be put on that. And that idea of the national spotlight to put this thing in a, in a fishbowl came from what Dr. Martin Luther King did with Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was not the first black woman to refuse to give up her seat on the bus. There have been others, but it only made news around Montgomery, Alabama. So Dr. King came up with the idea, we need, we need the whole country to see what's going on here, and then that will change things. The, the man was a genius, that was brilliant, all right? And that's what worked. So Black Lives Matter founders took that same concept, put the national spotlight on, on what's happening to black males at the hands of police. And, uh, and you know, began working. But 
the problem that that uh, that I think uh, Black Lives Matter has is this: the founders did not want to trademark the name and make it an organization. They just wanted it to, be, to be an organic movement. I don't believe. Well, there's no way they they could have known how big this thing was going to become. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were like 80, 90 different groups of Black Lives Matter all over the country. You could walk out your door right now and start your own Black Lives Matter group. Doesn't matter what color you are, whatever it is, you say, hey, I'm, I'm forming a Black Lives Matter group and you're welcome to do it because nobody has the trademark to that name. Mm-hmm. So as a result, you have pandemonium uh, and, and uh, people are, are not congruent in that movement. There are, there are Black supremacists in that movement, similar to what you saw in the movie that represent Black Lives Matter. You know, they, want, they didn't want anything to do with white people. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with this, that, and the other. Then there are those, there, there's, uh, there was a group in uh, Detroit and, and a group in uh, New York City, both contacted me and said, hey, you know, we really appreciate what you're doing. You know, do you give workshops? Can you teach us how to do what you do? You, these are the Black Lives Matter people. So, you know, they're not on the same page mm-hmm. where you have a centralized organization, let's say the NAACP or the Boy Scouts of America or the Red Cross, where they're centralized, policy is created at headquarters and then disseminate it to all the chapters around the country so that everybody, no matter where you go, whether you're in New York City or Los Angeles, both chapters are on the same page, following the same policy. Black Lives Matter is not, it's not like that. Some, some groups are, are more physically aggressive. Some are more you know, laid back. You know, they're willing to talk to you and have conversations. Others don't want anything to do with you. They want this and they want it now and so forth and so on. So here's the, here's the problem. As you know, with the media, when they they always want to go after the the negative negative things first because that you know that that gets the ratings so let's say uh black lives matter group in um in in new york does something uh stupid and uh, and a black lives matter group in in um in chicago is doing something good well when when the group in, in new york screws something up the media doesn't say um the, the, the New York chapter of Black Lives Matter did blah, blah, blah. They just say Black Lives Matter. So it paints a broad picture over all the different factions. And they don't deserve that. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, some of them are doing something good. Some of them are doing something, you know, not so good or whatever. Uh, so they don't make any distinction. And most people don't realize that this is not an organization that these people are not on the same page. They don't all belong to the same thing with one president. Each little group has its own little leaders. I mean, I would, from my perspective, I, I would counter push back on that a little bit. And what I see happening is it's kind of like an industrial revolution where it's, yeah, you're right. There is no core organization dictating, telling people what to do and guiding it. But what there, it is just the tentacles have just spread out to everyone's. And so everyone is free to use it. Um, and people are talking about it more. And I think it seemed to have put the issue on a lot more minds. And yes, it is a bit chaotic. I agree with that. But just by sheer numbers of people who got out into the streets, and like you're saying, you've never seen more white people marching for Black, for black Lives Matter, for Black civil rights than ever before right now. And, you know, I see that all kind of coming from all the constant efforts of, of black, the, the kind of core of Black Lives Matter starting in 2013. And it's just, whether it's someone capturing it on their phone, putting it on Facebook, uh, uh, capturing a police brutality on camera, such as George, George Floyd, uh, it, it forces the general population to look at it. And it's like forces you to really look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. You don't want to force somebody to change. You remember the, the, uh, the scenario with that white couple um, who, uh, who owned you know, this big mansion and a private road or yes. whatever, and yeah. Black Lives Matter people came, you know, trouncing through there and, you know, scared the heck out of them. Uh, they were supportive of the cause. They, you know, they want to see equality. But, you know, there's like no trespassing, and people come through their, through their road and through their yard, and so they come out with their guns. You know, I, I don't blame those people, you know, for, for being afraid. You know, they didn't know what was going to happen. And see, this is something, you know, that, that puts a negative spotlight on, on, on Black Lives Matter. 
not that particular chapter about of Black Lives Matter. That's the problem, you know, because they did it and carry the name Black Lives Matter. It reflects on the entire movement, which is why I say it needs to be centralized. We've come a long ways now. Don't blow it by having people turn against you, by, you know, some of you all doing things the right way and the rest of you all, you know, being renegades and, and, and doing stuff like that, you know, scaring the hell out of the people, you know, you know that you need uh, to support you. There's a difference between the phrase Black Lives Matter and the movement Black Lives Matter, because there are people who, who don't belong necessarily to the movement, but they do believe that Black lives do matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they believe, you know, all lives matter, you know, and Black lives matter, Black lives are part of all lives. And now how you can tell if, you know, if somebody is a racist uh, or not or whatever, uh, you know, you say, you know, well, Black lives matter, you know, whether you're talking about the movement or whether you're, or whether you're saying the phrase, you know, and then people say, well, white lives matter too, you know, all lives matter. And you say, so you say, okay, well, you, you have a problem with, with, uh, with somebody saying Black Lives Matter? Yes, I do. Why? Because it doesn't mention white lives. Oh, okay, okay. So do you have a problem with Blue Lives Matter? No. Well, that doesn't mention white lives either. Mm-hmm. So how come you don't have a problem with Blue Lives not mentioning white lives, but you have a problem with Black Lives because you're a racist? You, you, know, you, you have a problem with Black people. One of the most interesting moments in accidental courtesy, there's words exchanges between... Uh, you know, not a white supremacist or a Holocaust mm-hmm. denier, but uh, another black man, uh, Kwame Rose, who I understand, mm-hmm. you know, you uh, since the film, you guys have uh, come to a, a more friendly relationship. Right. Um, so I want to read you uh, this quote and our viewers who maybe haven't seen the film yet. Your, t- uh, your first meeting with a Black Lives Matter activist, Kwame Rose, and he says to you, Uh, in a moment of tension, infiltrating the Klan ain't freeing your people. White supremacists can't change, but I can change your mind because you look like me. You ain't doing nothing but collecting something that is going to build your own credibility. You're nothing but a pimp in a pulpit. And then you respond, you ain't nothing but ignorant. And uh, so that exchange, did you feel kind of thrown off your game a little bit? No, uh, I've I've had a lot of that before. I've been doing this 35 years, <laughs> long, longer than he's been born. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and when I said ignorant, um, I use that word a lot. And, and, I, and you know, some people take it as derogatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't say it in a, in a derogatory sense. We all are ignorant about yeah. certain things. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not an auto mechanic. I can't change spark plugs. I'm ignorant to that fact. So if I need them changed, I take it to the gas station or have a friend of mine who knows how to do it, do it for me. I could learn, but I'm ignorant in, into engine repair and stuff like that. All right. So I say it not to be derogatory, but, be, but to be like unknowing, uh, unaware. Mm-hmm. And if you recall, so let's give, let's give it some context. The first time I met Kwame, uh, I met him during the filming. And we were, uh, if you remember the, uh, the white former Baltimore City police officer, uh, Mike, uh, I forgot what his last, Wood, Mike Wood, we were in the, um, the parking lot handing out uh, lunch, mm-hmm. bag lunches to, to people, the homeless and whatever else, right? And he introduced me to Kwame. And what was the first thing Kwame said to me? If you go back and look at the movie, he said, I understand you're the first black member of the KKK. Yeah, yeah. That is the epitome of ignorance, mm-hmm. okay? Um, there are no black members in the KKK. If there were, there wouldn't be a KKK. Mm-hmm. Well, why was the KKK formed? Yeah. Okay. There wouldn't be any. There wouldn't be any KKK. So obviously, um, he had not done his homework. Uh, he didn't know as much about the KKK as he thought he did, mm-hmm. or about me. Obviously, he didn't know anything about me mm-hmm. if he thought I was a member of the KKK. Uh, so that in itself was ignorance. And so then, um, in the uh, in the bar, uh, when we're sitting down talking, um, he told me a white supremacist couldn't change even though I've, I've known ones who have changed many times. Uh, and furthermore, if he, if, if he really thought of what, he thinks the Baltimore City Police are full of white supremacists. Mm-hmm. That, that's where he keeps getting arrested, protesting out in front of the police station and, and calling out the police for Freddie Gray murders and all kinds of stuff, as they need to, mm-hmm. okay? You know, and, and he does a good job on that. I'm not, I'm not, con- I'm not condemning 
what he's doing with the police, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, he thinks those people are white supremacists, and some of them are, because guess what? I have one of their robes and their police uniform, as you saw in the movie, all right? But if he believed a white supremacist couldn't change, then why is he wasting his time marching up and down in front of the police station? Mm-hmm. How many police uniforms has he gotten? How many cops has he gotten to change their attitudes and give and given him their their cop uniform? Mm-hmm. Right. So yes, a white supremacist can change. If nobody could change, then we all are doomed. Yeah. All right. So, but but then you know so 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 I disagree with that. I just said you know and he called me a pimp in a pulpit. Blah blah blah. Um, I said you know you're just ignorant. And I think at some other point, uh, um, I I said you know he was telling me all this stuff, and I said. Well, the first thing he said at the table, when he, when he introduced himself, he said, uh, I'm Kwame Rose, I'm a 21-year-old college dropout, is what he said. That was his first introduction at the table. I'm, I'm a 21-year-old college dropout. So then he started you know, telling me all about what I need to do and how the world works, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew it differently. He's not been around as much as I have. He hasn't been, number one, he's not been around as long as I have. Number two, he's not been around as much as I have. I've been in 49 states and I've, and I've been in 57 countries, all right? So I, so I said to him, I said, oh, so all of this is coming from a 21 year old dropout? You know, you're, you're telling somebody who, who's in their 50s mm-hmm. and, and you've only lived 21 years? Mm-hmm. You know, this is what I'm thinking. This guy is ignorant. Mm-hmm. Not, I didn't call him stupid. Yeah. You know, uh, stupid means, you know, you have the facts, but, but, uh, but you don't use them. Ignorant means you don't have the facts. You yeah. just speculate on something. So that's where that was coming from. I thought Rose's uh, Kwame's argument to you was an ironic display of the pr- the core problem between humanity. You know, he says white supremacists can't change, but I can change your mind because you look like me. Uh-huh. So he himself is clinging to this to to racial identity in terms right. of uh, and. Uh, and to his credit, you know, I like Kwame. Uh, he reached out to me, you know, about a year, a year or so after, and and set up, you know, hey, you know, you know, you know let's get together, and and talk, you you and me and and the older guy, and um, you know, we did. We had dinner together, and we enjoyed ourselves, and we agreed to work together, and um, uh, the older guy and I, you know, got in touch, and we we began working, you know, getting together and meeting together and stuff like that several times. And then he like fell off the wagon. He like, he like exploded on me, mm-hmm. and and, and went, went right back into the, into the same mode he was in mm-hmm. uh, in the movie. So you know I don't see him anymore. But but what happens is they they lack the exposure, and the education of 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 these people's mentalities. And this is what we have to address. Otherwise, we're going to continually be fighting this war. Mm-hmm. And when you say you know, it's, it's not our job to be teaching people like that uh, t- how to behave. You know, why, you know, why are you sitting around with all these, you know, uh, your, your, your clan buddies? You know, it's not your job. You know, you should be out here help, you know, helping, you know, educate the black community and this, that, and the other. Well, who's he trying to educate marching in front of the police department? Mm-hmm. He's trying to educate white, white police officers yeah. to yeah. stop shooting us. I'm trying to educate white clansmen from stop, from stop hanging us and, and doing all kinds of other crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. It's no, we're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you know, to me, there's no difference between a racist cop in, in, a, in a uniform and a badge and a gun than a racist person in a robe and a hood. It's the same mentality. Yeah. And guess what? I got one of them who wore a robe and a hood and a badge and a gun. Mm-hmm. The cop whose uniform I pulled out in accidental courtesy. Yeah. I showed you his grand dragon robe and his uniform. So yes, people can change. Have you ever been disappointed in them? Have you ever notice any kind of falling back into old habits sure sure yeah 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 uh few of them not 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 many mm-hmm. yeah but, but but a couple of them yes yeah absolutely and that happens just like an alcoholic you know he goes to aa meetings and he's clean and sober for you know whatever amount of time and then something triggers or or he never got out of the environment um or he moves to, into a new place and that's those are the only kinds of people that are there so he, he reverts back to what he knows in order to get along. It happens, yeah. Um, but but only a few times. And I think you know those those particular people uh, will co- will come out eventually again. 
it seems like there's so much to learn from your approach that is lacking just in general communication discourse in, in the country. So I'm curious if, if you have in turn learned anything from uh, these other activists who are approaching in a different way than you. Um, I've learned what not to do. <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. Um, and, you know, I, I, I get it to some degree that you know they don't understand because they haven't had the lifestyle that I've had. They haven't had the experience, you know, that I've had. So they they do things the way they know to do them. Uh, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that works to a certain degree, but you know they're trying to to force people to do something, and it's got to be this way, and it's got to be now. And and if you're not, we're going to be on you. You know, uh, that doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. People, people will, will, you know, will resist force mm -hmm. and aggression. So there are other ways. And then people say, well, then the, the, their counter argument is, well, how long is it going to take? I mean, we've been doing this now for 400 years, blah, blah, blah. But things are changing. And, you know, when they say, you know, well, you know, you, you're wasting your time. You know, you, what, you know, you've, been, you've been doing this 30 years. You've only got 25 robes, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? Uh, I do work individually. So let's just say that you know, I'm being accused of not working systemically and marching up and down the street with my, with my bullhorn and saying no justice, no peace, enough is enough, blah, blah, blah. I'm sitting down with white supremacists, talking with them. Suppose um, I sat down, I, I had sat down with, uh, with Dylan Roof and established a relationship with him, planted a seed with him. Guess what? Nine black people having Bible study We'll still be having Bible study this coming Sunday. Okay, yeah. and I guess and 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 I I have helped. Uh, I I I can show you videos of people who were vehemently vehemently racist and violent. I I, I can point you towards a, a person who would become the next Dylan Roof. You'd be hearing about him on the news. And now I have his clan robe and all his neo-Nazi stuff. The Sandy Hook shooter. These are individuals. Okay, so yeah, maybe the system produces them. But if the system is producing them and all you are addressing is the system, what about them? Yeah. What about them? Somebody needs to humanity. Needs to be you're, you're approaching it, the humanity of the situation, the, the foundation beneath it all, because humanity is responsible for the system. Exactly. Precisely. And, and also, too, humanity spreads it. When you can reform one racist, well, then he's going to teach, then everyone he goes to, he's going to teach, you know. Exponentially. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, one last question, you mm -hmm. referenced it earlier, you know, you, uh, at the end of Accidental Courtesy, now streaming on Amazon Prime, great film, please watch it, uh, directed by the wonderful Matthew Ornstein. Um, you kind of talk about uh, Trump, you, you give commentary on Trump winning the election. And so I'm curious for your take going into another election four years later, uh, are you What's your take? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I predicted that uh, he was going to break the backbone of this country. And he's doing it right now. He's doing a good job of it. We are very divided. We are not one nation indivisible mm -hmm. under God with liberty and justice for all. We are not. And, and he is fueling that fire. He has, he has sown division amongst black people, amongst women. As a result, women have the Me Too movement, as I pointed out, against Hispanic people, against uh, Muslims, against gay people. Uh, right now, we are not welcome to come to Europe. No European country wants us there. And they, they have, they have uh, put a block on us from flying into their countries to come vacation. We are a divided country. And he is breaking our backbone. And <coughs> excuse me, there's going to come a time when we are going to have to realize we're gonna to need to work together to build this country back up. And it's not gonna be built back up in a two-tier society. It's gonna be built back up from the ground floor up with everybody on the ground floor coordinating with each other. I'm sure that was not his intention, because I don't, you know, uh, he, he's more concerned about himself than he is the, uh, the rest of the country. And, but, you know, the country will, will, will out-survive him. And um, do I predict that he will win the upcoming election? No, I don't think he will. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not going to support him in the upcoming election. And uh, 
But I do say, I, I maintain what I said in the film five years ago, that uh, Donald Trump is the best thing that's happened to this country because he's brought out all the ugliness and all the things that need to be addressed. Yeah, and we are, we're, yeah, we're starting to address them. We're pulling the, we're pulling the carpet back and seeing the dirt under the carpet and, and opening up the closet door and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think, you know, we, we, we're turning a page in this country and it's going to, you know, it's going to get better. It may get a little worse first, but it's going to get better. And, uh, and I thank Donald Trump for that. Wonderful. Daryl Davis, pleasure to talk to you. Uh, My pleasure. 